We are going to study tonight uh, the story of Cain and Abel, Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 to 15. So let's take our Bibles and turn over to Genesis chapter 4. And while you're turning over in your Bibles to Genesis 4, may I remind you of the outline that we've had so far. You remember the book of Genesis is divided into two major sections. Genesis 1 to 11 is the uh, uh, history of the patriarch, uh, the history of... Uh, of um, early history of man. And then beginning in Genesis 12 and running through Genesis 50, we have the history of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, uh, Jacob, and Joseph. Now we're on Genesis 1 to 11. And in Genesis 1 to 11, we have several great critical events in human history. The first is creation, Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3. The second, is man's original state before the fall. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 to verse 25. Number three is the fall of man into sin. Genesis chapter 3. Now we're ready for number four. And number four runs from Genesis chapter 4, verse 1 to Genesis chapter 6, verse 7. We call it the terrible increase of sin. And that's what you have on the outline, the great increase of sin or the terrible increase of sin in the human race. And under that, we're going to have four things, the story of Cain and Abel, and then the posterity of, uh, of Cain, and then the posterity of Seth, and then the climax of evil in the human race in Genesis 6, 1 to 7. We'll look at that in just a minute. Now, this is a, a supremely important section. You know, you, I, I often like to ask myself when I'm studying a passage, why did the Holy Spirit, why was the Holy Spirit pleased to put this incident in the Bible? When I come to study the four Gospels, I know that Jesus did hundreds and hundreds and hundreds more things than record the four Gospels. Why, John says at the end of John that if all that Jesus said and did were put in books, the world wouldn't contain the books. Now, he was using the hyperbole there. But what he meant was that uh, it would take vast rooms, great number of rooms, to hold all the books that could be written about the life and, and, and acts of Jesus. Now, why did he select these in the Gospel of John? When we come to the Old Testament, why did God select this and overlook this? Why did he select this and overlook this? And specifically, why did God select Genesis 4, 1 to 15, the story of the uh, murder of Abel by Cain. Well, for several reasons, and we're going to touch on them at the end and, 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 and underscore the importance of Genesis 4, 1 to 15. But may I say that, first of all, it shows us the immediate effects of original sin. That's its primary thrust. It, it, it shows us the terrible permeation, corruption, transmission of sin. In Genesis 3, we have the uh, beginning of original sin. In Genesis 4, we have the permeation of, of original sin. In Genesis 3, we have rebellion against God, and that's immediately manifested by murder and one of the worst forms of murder, fratricide, the killing of one's own family. If you'll turn in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, we might see this. Romans chapter 5, verse 12.
Romans chapter 5, verse 12, we read these words. And here's the Romans 5, 12 to 21 is the commentary on Genesis 3. And we read in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. Now that's Genesis 3. By one man sin entered into the world and death on account of sin. That's Genesis 3. So death passed upon or passed through all men, and that's Genesis 4. At least that's Genesis 4, the start of this. When it says that death and sin passed through all men, it means that death and sin infected every man, permeated every man. I'm born a sinner. I'm part of original sin. God considers me guilty of that first sin, and my nature is tainted by original sin. Now, the first effect of it is shown to us in Genesis 4, and it's stark. A brother murders his brother. And the whole purpose of Genesis 4 is to demonstrate, to show to us, the terrible permeation of sin that began in Genesis 3. Sin began in Genesis 3, and in Genesis 4, not more than, what, 20 years later, 22 years later, when Cain killed Abel, it shows us a terrible um, corruption of sin. Remember how James speaks about sin conceiving, and when it conceives, it brings forth lust, and, and when it, lust brings forth, it brings forth death. And here we have it in Genesis chapter 4. Here is the beginning, by the way, of man's inhumanity to man. This is a cardinal theme in as you well know in literature today. Um, one of the latest writers, who's not a Christian at all, uh, who got hold of this thing, and it's interesting how many of the literary giants can get hold of the problem, but have no answer. And the theologians can't get hold of the problem, see, at least the liberals. But some of these men who are agnostics can get hold of the problem. And the man that wrote that book, Lord of the Flies, uh, which a lot of our children had to read. The man that wrote that book, Lord of the Flies, had precisely this in mind. That is the corruption of man, that man is endemically evil. Six boys, English boys, reared in a good culture with the finest English training, shipwrecked on an island. And then he describes how these boys began to fall apart and revert to their criminal animal natures. What is that but a commentary on Genesis 3 and 4? Genesis 4 tells us the terrible permeation of sin. Well, in Genesis 4, we have, uh, we have the first outbreak of that war between the seeds. We have several firsts in Genesis 4. We have the first baby in Genesis 4. First baby. We have the first home. We have the first birth. We have the first murder. We have the first fratricide. We have the first pastoral life. We have the first urban culture in Genesis 4. We'll see that next week. We have the first case of polygamy. We have the first arts and science. We have the first metallurgy. We have the first music, and we have the first poem. And the first poem was dedicated uh, to an act of murder and revenge, which shows the, the sinfulness of the human heart. 
Now, may I say one other thing? Genesis 4 gives us the only authentic record of early development of the human race, and we need it. The evolutionist gropes and gropes. See, he assumes that man was born, uh, what man evolved, and he started primitive, and his intelligence was very poor. And as intelligence grew, then he was capable of, uh, of uh, developing uh, um, certain techniques. And he, uh, going back to Brest at the University of Chicago, he left becoming a food gatherer and became a food producer. But see, the Bible says that man was created with a high intelligence. If Adam hadn't sinned, we'd all been Atlases and Platos. And the Bible tells us that man was created with a high intelligence. Adam had a high intelligence, and Cain and Abel had a high intelligence. And immediately when we open Genesis 4, we're introduced to farming, to agriculture, to domestication of animals. The evolutionist tells us that's law all along, along the way. The Bible says no. That's at the very beginning of the human race. Because the Bible assumes what is true, and that is man was created with an intelligence. But if you own the normal textbook on history, the first 10, 12, 15 pages are devoted to the evolutionary theory of the beginning of the human race. And our children are suckled on that theory, and it's absolutely contrary to what the Bible teaches. Now, let's look at the outline, and then we're going, to read, we're going to study Genesis 4. Now, look up here. Now, I don't want your outline you got there. It's not there. See, what we have in Genesis chapter 3, Genesis 3, we have the beginning of sin. Sin begins in Genesis 3. Genesis chapter 4, 1 to 15, we have the transmission of sin. Sin is transmitted to the first two sons. Cain was born for that sinful nature of Adam and Eve. And Abel was born with that sinful nature of Adam and Eve. The first transmission of sin. Third, we have the story in, in, uh, later of Lamech and uh, of Lamech, Cain's descendants. We reach of sin increasing. And that's in Genesis 4, beginning at verse 16, uh, running all the way through Genesis 5, the increase of sin. Then in Genesis 6, 1 to 7, we have the climax of sin. And the climax is reached in Genesis 6, verse Five. I wonder if you turn over to Genesis 6, verse 5. This is the climax to what started in Genesis 3. Genesis 6, verse 5. We read in, in uh, Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, these words, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That, you know, if you stop to think of how he, uh, how he puts one thing upon another in that last part of verse 5, what about the imagination of the thoughts of a man's heart? The imagination of the thoughts of a man's heart, of every man's heart, was it's not only evil, it's only evil. And it's only evil how often? Continually. See? He's always thinking evil and in the context of sensual evilness. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him in his heart. And the Lord said, I'll destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air, for it repents me that I have made him. That's the climax of what began in Genesis chapter 3.
Now, what we have here is um, um, uh, like this. Um, we have uh, the story of um, we have the story of uh, Cain and Abel here, and of course, Cain kills Abel. So that leaves Cain, and who was the successor to Abel? Seth. The word Seth means appointed. And he was appointed in the place of Abel. Then what we got from 14, chapter 4, we have that story in chapter 4, 1 to 15, of the murder of Abel by Cain. And then in chapter 4, beginning at verse uh, 16 and running through verse 24, we have the story of the descendants of Cain, and the last one is Lamech. And then beginning at chapter 4, verse 25, uh, the author goes back to this point right here, and picks up that story and runs it chapter 5, verse 32. And the last man there is Noah. So that Noah and Lamech are contemporaries. So you have in, in the line of Cain, you have the seed of Satan. Remember he said in Genesis 3, 15, I'll put enmity between your seed and her seed, between you and the woman, and between your seed devil and the seed of the woman. Well, that's what you have in its beginning. It, it, the first outbreak of that is this right here, Cain and Abel. The very first children that are born illustrated the war between the seeds. The war between the seeds, Genesis 3.15. And then in Genesis 4.16 to 24, you have the story of, of uh, descendants of, the, of uh, the line of Cain, the seed of the devil. And then in Genesis 4.25 to 5.32, you have the descendants of the line of Seth. And the last one in Seth's line is Noah. The last one in Cain's line is Lamech. And that comes to a climax in 6, 5 to 7, and the climax in the flood. When God destroys that line and this line, Noah and his three sons continue. And what's the first thing that happened to Noah after he got out of the ark? Got drunk. Got drunk, see? Which shows us that the that are uh, the evil tendencies of the human heart. Now you say, well, that was terrible of Noah. Don't say that was terrible of Noah, because that, uh, you know, in every Christian's life, in every believer's life, there is a potential for the vilest sin. David was a man after God's own heart, but he was guilty of murder, adultery, and sending a man out to the front line to be killed. Moses was a believer in God, but he was guilty of murder. Noah was a man of God, but he was guilty of, uh, of drink. He slipped and got drunk, committed a grave sin. And the human heart is vile and only conquered by the grace of God, and that won't be eradicated until we get to heaven. Don't anybody ever let you tell you that you can reach entire sanctification this side of heaven. If they do, ask them to speak with their wives. See? <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's go to Genesis 4. <clears throat> now, that's the background. You see the thrust? Genesis 4, 1 to 15, we got the murder of Abel by Cain. And then in Genesis 4, 17 to 24, we have the descendants of Cain. And then in Genesis 4, 25 to 32, we have the 5, 32, we have the descendants of Seth. Then in Genesis 6, 1 to 7, we have that terrible climax. Now, let's begin at Genesis chapter 4. And we'll read about the first eight verses. And Adam knew his wife, and she conceived, and bare Cain, 
and said, I've gotten a man from the Lord. And she uh, again bare his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And it came, in, and in process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respected Abel to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very angry. That's internal. And you know, your internal psychological state always shows uh, uh, on the outside. So his countenance fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? If thou doest not well, sin crouches at the door. And unto you shall be sin's desire, but do thou rule over it. Now, I'm changing that a little, uh, the way I think it ought to be interpreted. Now, let's look, at, uh, let's look at these first eight verses. First thing we have here, you see that outline? We've got five things here in that outline. Now, I ask you to look at it. First, the birth of Cain. Second, the occupations. Third, the offerings. Four, the murder of Abel. And five, the punishment of Cain. Now, let's look at this. First of all, the birth of Cain and Abel. That's in verses 1 and 2. Adam knew his wife, and she conceived. There Cain and said, I've gotten a man from the Lord. And she began to bear his brother Abel. Now, you know that the word K-N-E-W is the normal biblical word for sexual intercourse. And it uses that word because it describes the personal intimacy. It's not an impersonal realm but a personal intimacy, so it uses that word. Matter of fact, the word K-N-O-W um, uh, means a lot more than simply um, uh, knowledge of a thing. Uh, the Lord, Psalm 1-6, the Lord knoweth the way of the godly, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. But that says the Lord knows, does that mean God's just aware of the way? No, it means a great deal more than that. The word know has the idea of loving affection. And the word foreknowledge is not simply advanced knowledge. It has within it the idea of loving affection previous to the event. So here is this word know, which speaks of loving personal affection. Adam knew his wife. She conceived and bare Cain. Now the word Cain is K is C-A-N-A-H, Kana. Or the word, uh, pardon me, the word gotten. See that word gotten? C-N. C-A-N-A-H, gotten is Cain. That's why she called him Cain. That's why it says, I've gotten a man from the Lord or with the Lord. I've gotten a man with the Lord's help. She called him Cain, which means obtained. Why'd she call him that? Because God had said to her in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between her seed. Ah, oh, she said, I've gotten him of whom God promised. She called him Cain, gotten, obtained. Well, what a sorrow that must have been to her heart when, what, 20 years later, 22, 25 years later, the man whom she thought was the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 killed his brother. Now, we got that today, haven't we? There's many a mother whose heart's been broken over the waywardness of her son. There may be some here tonight. May I remind you that your first mother's heart was broken 
over the waywardness of her son, who ended up by killing his brother and becoming a vagabond and a wanderer forever. What is that? The terrible permeation of sin. Do you think, ladies, that Eve must have wept many times for the tragedy of listening to the seduction of Satan? It cost her her son. So a second son was born. She called his name Abel, which means breath or vanity. Perhaps by now she was impressed with the vanity of life and called one Cain and called the other Abel. Now look at their occupation, second part of verse 2. Abel was a keeper of the sheep. Cain was a tiller of the ground. Here was division of labor. Cain was agriculture. Abel was the domestication of animals. They both probably received this from their father. The father probably engaged in both of them. And both of them were proper occupations. Now, I'm saying that because every once in a while, I read a commentary that says that, that Abel was involved in taking care of animals, domestication of animals, especially sheep, and, and which are offered for sacrifice. And, and Cain was involved in, in uh, tilling and agriculture, and he had a much lower uh, occupation. There's no substance at all. Uh, in, uh, from, uh, for that idea of the Bible. They're both, both proper occupations. Probably the father engaged in both. One of them took one, agriculture. The other took the other, the domestication of animals, and worked together. But I do think it's important to note, may I call your attention to it, that man was able to farm and take care of animals from the beginning. Though he used primitive tools, whatever they may have been, and when we get to Genesis, near the end of Genesis 4, we find that they weren't too primitive. But man was able to get, to, involve, to get involved in these kind of things from the very beginning. That is involved in domestication of animals and in productive farming. He was a food producer from the beginning. Man, and the reason is, man had an excellent mind. He didn't, involve, he didn't evolve. He had an excellent mind. And therefore, he is capable of doing it. And of course, that runs straight across evolutionary theory. Now, we notice the third thing. The offerings of Cain and Abel in verses 3 to 7. Now, I want to approach this by simply commenting on these verses. Then I want to go back and ask five questions. I have all five of them here. So, verses 4 to 7, uh, verse 4, Abel, uh, verse 3, pardon me, process of time. Came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. That is, he brought the produce of his, uh, of his occupation the produce of the ground. Abel brought the firstling of his flock and of the fat thereof. Now, we don't want to read into this the blood sacrifices that we find later on. If there's any difference, the difference lies in the fact that Abel brought the best. He brought the firstling of the flock. He brought the best to God, whereas Cain probably only brought a mediocre offering. Now, I remember the book of Malachi addresses that problem. And that probably is the key difference. What was God's response? Verse 4b, the Lord had respect unto Abel. That is, he received what Abel offered. He had respect unto Abel. Notice the order. He had respect unto Abel first, and then to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering, unto Cain first, and then to his offering, he had not respect. Well, when this happened... Um, However it happened, however God demonstrated his 
his uh, respect and his non-respect, Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. He was aggravated, angered by God's rejection of his offering. And he showed it outwardly, his face fell. And uh, God immediately knew that, knew it before his face fell. And uh, uh, the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou angry? Now, God wasn't asking for information. You know, you find these questions in the Bible. And when God asks these questions, they're not for information. God uses these questions to arouse in a man a sense of his own guilt and of his own duplicity and his own sinfulness. God raises these questions to get a man thinking and to alert him to his own case. And what God is saying when he says, uh, why are you angry and why is your countenance falling? What God is saying, I believe, in effect is, you have no right to be angry. I told you what to do. You knew the way, as we shall see in a minute, and you wouldn't come my way. You came your own way. And I rejected you because you came your way instead of mine, you therefore have no right to be angry. And God goes on by saying, if you do well, uh, shall, you'll be accepted. If you come my way, then you'll be accepted. And if you don't come my way, then sin lies at the door. Unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt have a rule over it. Now, let's look at these. I want to ask five questions. I want to ask five questions here. You have them on the outline. First one is this. How did Cain and Abel know what offering to bring? Or did they? God rejected Cain's offering. God accepted Abel's offering. Now, did Abel know what he should bring and brought it? And did Cain know what he should bring and did not bring it? Did Cain and Abel know what they should bring? What offering to bring? Or um, did they not? Well, the answer, I believe, to that is yes. Yes, they did. Well, you say, on what ground do you believe that they knew what to bring? On two grounds. First of all, although it's not said specifically, I believe they had the example of Adam. Here, Cain and Abel were, what, 20 years old, 22, 25 years of age. And um, I have no doubt in my mind that God had, um, who instituted sacrifice in Genesis 3:21. I have no, idea, no doubt that Adam had, at regular times, offered a blood sacrifice to God. We know that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. We know that blood sacrifices uh, did not start with Moses. When Noah got out of the ark, what was the first thing Noah did? Offered a sacrifice to God. So long before the blood sacrifices were instituted in the Mosaic Law, Man had been informed by God what he should bring. Noah knew. Abraham knew it. Abraham, when he, wherever he went, built an altar. Built an altar. Built an altar to God. Abraham knew it. Isaac knew it. Noah knew it. I think Adam knew it. And at regular intervals, I think Adam uh, offered a sacrifice of an animal, blood sacrifice to God. Uh, and as a token of his belief in Genesis 3.15 and as a forepicturing how much he knew of it, of the coming Messiah. Now, Cain and Abel had that example. And so I think they knew what to bring. 
But more than that, I think that God had told them what to bring. I think that Abel knew precisely what to bring, and he brought it. And I think Cade knew precisely what to bring, and he didn't bring it. Now, you say, how do you know that? Because the New Testament indicates that Abel's response was a faith response. And that means there was a previous revelation. May I ask you to turn with me to two passages. One is Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. Faith is a response to a previous revelation. Faith always implies an object. We read in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, these words. May I ask you to turn with me to it? Romans 10, 17. So then faith cometh by what? And hearing by what? Faith comes. Faith originates and grows by hearing a revelation from God, the Word of God. Where there's no revelation from God, there's no faith. Well, you say, can a pagan have faith in God? A certain kind of... Yes, because he's got the revelation of God in nature and in conscience. And faith is a response to God's revelation. Faith is a response to God's revelation. Now, the question I have to ask is, did Abel exercise faith when he brought that offering? Now, I turn to Hebrews 11 now. That's the second passage. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. We read in Hebrews 11, 6, without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he's a reward of them that diligently seek him. Now, skip up to verse 4, Hebrews 11, verse 4. Now, look at it very carefully. We'll read it. By good luck, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Is that what it says? By good, solid, rational, clear thinking. No, by what? And faith is a response to God's revelation, which means that when Abel, by faith, offered it, Abel had a previous what? Revelation from God. God had told Abel and Cain what to bring. Why was uh, Abel accepted? Because he obeyed God and came God's way. Why was Cain rejected? Because he disobeyed God and came his own way. Faith, here is... Um, here is the revelation of God. Faith is a response to God's revelation. See? Faith is a response. Faith is a response. That's why faith is not sincerity. Faith, uh, to be genuine, faith must be sincere, but faith is not sincerity because you can be sincerely wrong. Faith is biblical faith is a right response to the revelation of God. Faith is the resting of the mind in the sufficiency of the evidence. Faith is the resting of the mind in the sufficiency of the evidence, the revelation. Faith is a response to the revelation of God. Well, now, how did, how did uh, Abel bring that offering? By what? By faith, Abel offered a more acceptable sac By faith. That means there was a previous revelation. What was that previous revelation? 
bring a blood sacrifice. See? Abel brought it. He was accepted. Cain did not bring it, and he was rejected. Did Cain and Abel know what offering to bring, or did they not? They did. They did, because Abel offered his sacrifice by faith, not by good luck, not by intellect, not by rationalization, but by faith. And faith is a response to God's word. Now, second question I want to ask is, why did Cain and Abel approach God? Why did Cain and Abel approach God? Now, that's the fifth question in your outline, is it not? I've changed it. Is that right? Number five. What is number five in your outline? Why did... Now, why did Cain and Abel approach God? They did not approach God to be saved. Abel was already saved. Cain was already lost. They didn't approach God to be saved. Abel approached God because he was saved. Abel approached God as an act of worship. And the offering was a manifestation of the condition of the soul. Abel was a believer in God, and he offered that sacrifice as a manifestation of the condition of his soul. Cain rejected God's way, and his offering was a manifestation of the intransigency, the rebellion of his soul. They didn't offer that sacrifice to be saved. Offered it as a manifestation of the condition of their heart, right with God or not right with God. Question number three. Question number three. Why was Abel's offering accepted and Cain's rejected? Well, I've answered that somewhat the first question. Abel's offering was not accepted because it was a blood sacrifice. That's involved, but that's not the basic reason. That point is true, but that's not the basic reason. The Bible says that God had respect unto what? Abel, and then unto his offering. And it wasn't because, and not unto Cain. God is concerned about the condition of the heart, and the rejection of Cain's offering lay primarily in the man, not the offering. Now, why? Well, positively, let me say three things. First of all, this offering of Cain displayed three things. I think I've got them on here. First is a wrong attitude. Cain's heart was not right with God, and his action betrayed a wrong attitude. Will you take your Bible and turn with me to 1 John chapter 3? First John chapter 3, verse 11, First John 3, 11. For this is the message you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one. Now, who's the wicked one? The devil. He was of that wicked one. What did he say in Genesis 3, 15? I'll put in between, between you and the woman and between your seed devil. What does it call Cain here? Of that wicked one. Cain was of that wicked one, of the devil. And he slew his brother. Wherefore he slew him? Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. And the righteous works of his brother brought a sense of guilt and condemnation to Cain. So he tried to get rid of him, got rid of him. You do it. Wrong attitude. 
Cain's heart was not right with God, and his action betrayed that wrong attitude. A rebellious heart leads to disobedience. Why you got 1 John? Turn over with me to Jude. You got 1 John? Turn over a couple of passages. While we're at it, it'll save us maybe looking at it a little later. Jude, one chapter in Jude. Verse 11, verse 10. But these speak evil of those things which they know not, but what they know naturally as brute, breed, brute beasts, and those things they corrupt themselves. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, the way of Cain, and ran greedily after the heir of Balaam for reward, and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. Now there are three statements there that all reflect the Old Testament, and you would do well to study those three. We're not going to study them. The way of Cain, the heir of Balaam, and the gainsaying of Korah. And if I, may I suggest if you'll study those three, they'll open up three wonderful truths. What is the way of Cain? It's the, a way of attempting to come to God by some other way than the way he is ordained. You remember we sing a hymn sometime, um, which I've just now forgotten. <laughs> it speaks about there's no other way home, you know. The way of the cross leads home. What is the way of Cain? It's the way, it's the attempt to come to God in some other way than that way which he has ordained. What does the Bible say? Neither is there salvation in any other. What did Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. That's the way of Cain. And the way of Cain, the world's religion, the religion of the natural man, the religion of the man that walks the streets of Memphis today goes right back to Genesis 4, the way of Cain. And Cain had a wrong attitude, hatred toward God, hatred toward God, and jealousy toward his brother. And that led, secondly, to wrong action. Number two, the wrong attitude of the heart led to a wrong action. Cain's heart of rebellion against God led to willful disobedience. He brought his own off not the one that God had ordered. And he was rejected because he came in disobedience. That was an act of disobedience toward God's revealed will. He tried to approach God his way. And that ended up by, third, a wrong offering. God had not respect unto Cain and his offering. What did he have not respect unto first? The man's attitude. And then, secondly, not unto his, it was the wrong offering. Cain failed to bring a blood sacrifice. And Abel brought a more acceptable sacrifice. Why was he rejected? Why? Because he refused to come God's way. May I repeat that? Why was Cain rejected? Because he wasn't polite? No, he may have been polite. Courteous? Courteous. You know, it's kind of like Jacob and Esau. If you had been choosing a man to go out on a hunting trip, you would have chosen Esau way ahead of Jacob, see. Jacob would have been always, you know, uh, you out fishing. He'd been throwing stuff over on your side of the boat and <laughs> chase the fish over on his side, see. He was a schemer. You wanted to go hunting or fishing, you'd choose Esau. Esau was easy and long one. He'd be good for hunting, for fishing. He'd be a good companion. Jacob, no. Wherever you went to eat, you'd always, you know, you would always, his, he had the slowest draw in the West. I got a good friend of mine, used to be here in Memphis. Some of you would know him, but I won't mention his name. I joke about him. 
I say he's got the slowest draw in the West. <laughs> and the East for that matter. Do you know what I mean? Well, anyway, Esau would have been the fellow that you would have just enjoyed, not Jacob. But Esau was a profane man, the Bible says. What does that mean, profane? Pro means before, and phanus, the Latin word, means the temple. Profane is outside the temple. And Esau was a profane man, not that he cursed, but that he was outside the temple. That is, he had no interest in God or the things of God. He was entirely indifferent to God. He was what we would call today a purely secular man. He wasn't necessarily indecent or immoral or unkind. He may have been very kind and very good, but he was totally indifferent to God. So may have Cain been, although he ended up by murdering his brother. But uh, the thing that was wrong with Cain was that he tried to come to God some other way than the way God ordained. And there are a thousand Cains in Memphis tonight, see, who want to come to God some other way. Is God's only way. God shows acceptance of Abel's offering. See, he, he accepted Abel, he rejected Cain's. How do we know? How did, how did Cain know that and Abel know that? Well, let me add, I don't know that. See, I don't know. It may have been that, just as in the Old Testament, fire came down from heaven, as it did with the offering of Elijah, and consumed Abel's offering and did not consume Cain's. That's as much as we know. Now let's look at this fifth question. What is the meaning of God's word to Cain? Let's go back now to Genesis chapter 4, 6 to 7. Genesis chapter 4, 6 to 7. What's the meaning of that? There's first a question and then secondly a warning. First the question. The Lord said to Cain, verse 6, Why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? Now I've already explained that. Anger is the internal thing. Countenance is the external. God wasn't asked that to get some information. He was asking that to reveal Cain to himself. Just like um, uh, in similar fashion, God said to Adam, Where art thou, Adam? God looking around and said, Wonder, you know, what tree Adam's behind? Hide and seek. Where are you, Adam? No, no. As St. Augustine said, Adam was not lost to God's knowledge, but to God's fellowship. God knew where Adam was. He knew the problem with Cain. What he wanted to do was to get Cain to discover himself. Uh, and you know that's a very hard process, isn't it? You know, some of us lived 40, 45, 50 years before discovering that the real problem is the person I see in the mirror. And what God wanted to do with Cain was to get him to discover himself, to see what he was. Look where you are, Cain. You have no right to be angry. Look where you are. Now look at that second statement, verse 7. If you do well, that is, if you come my way, the God-ordained way, then you'll be accepted. And if you do not well, three statements. Sin couches or crouches, either one would be all right, at the door. And unto you shall be its desire, but you shall rule over it. Now, what's he saying? He's personifying sin here. And, uh, you know, we personify love. Um, love, you know, Paul does that in 1 Corinthians. 
Corinthians 13. He personifies love. Love suffers long. Does love suffer long? No. It's the man who has love that suffers long. Love hears, bears no ill will. Does love bear no ill will? No, love is an abstract thing. It's the man who loves or the woman who loves who bears no ill will. Now, that's personification. And uh, God personifies sin in terms of a beast, a tiger or a lion. What he's saying is that sin couches. First, like a... Uh, uh, a beast that's ready to spring, sin couches at your door, the door of your life. Sin couches there, ready to spring on you and to destroy you. Secondly, he says in verse 7, unto you shall be its desire. Whose desire? Sin's desire. Why does sin desire you and me? To destroy us. Remember what Jesus said to Peter? Simon, Simon. Satan hath desired you to sift you like wheat, to destroy you. What did Peter say? Probably remembering those words and his experience. What did Peter say in 1 Peter 5? The devil as a roaring lion goes about seeking whom he may destroy. And when Peter wrote that, he was talking to Christians. The devil as a roaring lion goes about seeking whom he may destroy. Destroy what? Our salvation? No but our lives and our testimony to ruin us, to damage them irreparably. Now, I don't tend, anything happens, I don't tend to say, oh, the devil made me do it, or I see the devil and everything. In fact, I tend the other way. I believe in the reality of the Bible, but I believe that one of the modern tendencies we have today is the tendency to, uh, to excuse our own responsibility and blame somebody else. So I don't like this, oh, the devil made me do it. No, the devil didn't make you do it or me do it. I did it. I did it freely. But nevertheless, sin and the devil, like a deadly beast, couch at the door, its desires for the juggler vein of your spiritual life to destroy you. Then the third statement. There's a semicolon. Verse 7. And unto thee shall be its desire to destroy you. Semicolon. You got the word and after that comma, don't you? It ought to be but, but. You, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a command, an invitation. You rule over it. Don't let it rule over you. You rule over it. See? Here's sin, couching the door like a beast, ready to destroy you. It's striving to get at you. That's the meaning of that second term. Uh, Unto you shall be its desire, striving to get at you. But do thou rule over it. Conquer or be conquered. Now, how many of you think God is saying that to here tonight? How many? Every one of us, right. See, you're here tonight, you're a Christian. Then God sees to you about sin, you either conquer that habit or you'll be conquered by it. See? You either conquer that habit or it will conquer and destroy you. I don't mean destroy your salvation. I believe in the perseverance of the saints. But it'll ruin you and damage you. You see, and, you know, sin is like the little foxes that destroy the grapes. You sow a thought and you reap an act. And you sow an act and you reap a habit. And you sow a habit and you reap character. And character 
is ever tending toward permanency. And that's why it's so important with young children that uh, they are taught this principle, that if they play with a sin, and especially with boys, and I suppose girls, though I've never had a girl's mind, but a boy, if they play with the sin of evil, licentious thoughts, it'll fix a habit upon them, one day to destroy them, spiritually, see. Now, it won't lose their salvation, they're saved, but it'll destroy them. You don't think, my friend, that when David saw Bathsheba out there and eventually committed adultery, that's the first time he thought about it. He had thought about that a long time toyed with in his mind and broke finally under that thing. Sin couches at the door, the door of your life. It's ready as Satan's tool to destroy you and to destroy me. But by the grace of God, I can conquer, see? But those are the alternatives. Conquer or be conquered. Now, what did, what did Cain say in answer to that? What did he say in the answer to that? He didn't say anything, did he? He was silent. See, that was an invitation on God's part. If you do well, you'd be accepted. What do you mean? You brought the wrong sacrifice, Cain. If you'll repent and bring the right sacrifice, God said, I'll do what? I accept you. See, that's an invitation. An invitation. Just like Jesus offered the sop to Judas, a final invitation. God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. Here was an invitation. You do well, you'll be accepted. You brought the wrong offering. I haven't written you off, Cain. You go back and get the right one and come, and you'll be accepted. But what did Cain do? Too stubborn, too rebellious. He didn't want to bow down. Admit he was wrong. He didn't want to come God's way. See? He was silent. So, you know, that doesn't... That, that, that doesn't stand still. Gets down inside of a man, works on him. Here's rejected by God. Here was that sissy brother of his. <laughs> See, Abel. He was accepted. Here was that goody-goody that God accepted. And God's rejected me. And that thing began to get in his heart. And you know there's nothing that eats like cancer, as does revenge. And inside his heart, jealousy and revenge against his brother, and especially in the area of religion. And one day he thought about that, and that got down inside of him, just the opposite of Joseph, got down inside of him, and he nurtured it, and he fed it, and he thought about it, and he nurtured it, and nursed it, and fed it, and thought about it, and that thing grew like a monster inside of him. Then one day he said to his brother, hey, listen, come on out in the field. See, Cain worked in the field. He was an agriculturist. Come on out the field. I want to show you something. And he killed it. Premeditated. Now that leads us to the next one. Let's look at it. Verses 9 through 15. Verse 8. The next one. The, uh, the murder of, of Abel. Verse 8. The murder of Abel. And Cain talked with Abel his brother. Now the sept and the Jewish Targums add something here. And the Septuagint, the Jewish Targums add, uh, uh, add the words 
uh, and he talked with them and said, let us go into the field. Now, that's not in the better Hebrew text. It's in the Septuagint and the Targums, but it probably reflects a correct idea. He talked with them. He said something to them. What did he say? Let's go out in the field, see? And that probably reflects a true idea. Cain talked with Abel's brother, come on out in the field. And it came to pass that when they were in the field, Cain rose up against Abel's brother and slew him. The word slew means attacked him, a vicious attack, which ended in the death of Cain. Here was a, the whole point is here was a premeditated murder. This wasn't an act of anger. It was anger, but it wasn't just a momentary act. It was something that Cain had nursed in his heart and soul for many days. And finally he plotted it, invited his brother outside and attacked him. Why did he do it? What motivated Paul? Um, what, made, motivated, um, what motivated Cain to do this? Well, now look here. You remember what we read in 1 John 3? His, his brother's deeds were righteous. Remember, it says that. Why did he slay him? Because his, right, his deeds were evil and his brother's deeds were... Why did they kill Jesus? John chapter 3. He came a light into the world and men loved darkness rather than... They hated the light. You read John chapter 15. The same thing. Here was the... They, 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 they crucified Jesus Christ for the same reason. This is a, the first outbreak of the war between the seas. Now, will you listen to me carefully? This is going to run like a thread all through the Bible. The war between the seas. The godly line and the ungodly line. Where is it going to come to a climax? In the tribulation when Satan's great masterpiece, the Antichrist, is going to war, Revelation 12, against the godly line. And this marks all human history. He provides us with a clue to the biblical philosophy of history, the war between the seas. So don't be surprised when your unconverted relatives and friends avoid you or treat you mean or reject your Savior. That's not abnormal. That's normal. That's par for the course. The Bible predicts that. We had a, uh, a, a chapel this morning at 9.40 to 10.20, and we had testimonies and prayers, and we had about three students. Uh, they all told, we had about six students who gave testimony and told what, uh, what they had done over the weekend. And uh, none of them, by the way, said they had a big Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> uh, but... Uh, they told of going home, and three of them, three of them, and some of you would know these, uh, three of them got up and said, my father and mother, or my mother, is not a Christian. And I have the opportunity this weekend to go home. There's always been something between my father and mother and myself. One boy said, there's always been, it's always, my father's not a Christian. He knows I'm coming here. It's all right with him, but he doesn't hold anything for it. He's not a Christian. He's always resented my stand for Christ. He said, the first time I've ever had a really good opportunity where it was easy to do it, I had a chance to talk to him about being saved and to share my faith in Christ. And he was open. And about the last thing he said was, listen, I hope you can come back home again here, not very far distant, probably Christmas, and we'll talk about this again. A young girl 
and some of you do know because she told me about her, went home and talked with her mother. And she said it's always been, she's either much rather gone with the students down to Birmingham. They played a basketball game, our students did, our basketball team down in Birmingham. She said, I'd much rather gone down there, and uh, I couldn't, and I had to go home, and, and because my mother's not a Christian, in the closest thing in life, we don't share a common conviction. But she said, I got home, and God convicted me about that, and for the first time, I had a real opportunity to talk to her about the Lord and share with her my faith in Christ. But see, it's hard. Animosity. Why? The war between the seas. So don't think it's, it's something strange when you suffer from faith in Christ. God ordained that at the beginning of human history. Is it hard for you to witness for Christ, especially to your relatives? God ordained that in Genesis 3. I'll put enmity between thee and the woman, between her seed and your seed. That goes back the inception of human history. Here was the first murder, and the first, more than that, the first fratricide, and more than that, the first religious persecution in history. And history is replete with this. And I suppose the worst persecutions in history are religious persecutions. Now let's read the rest of it quickly. The Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And Cain said, I don't know. Am I supposed to watch over my brother all the time? Am I my brother's keeper? Now that's a good question. Am I my brother's keeper? What is the answer to that? No and yes. See, Am I my brother's keeper in the sense that I'm accountable to God for my brother? No. I'm only accountable to God for myself. I can't blame it on somebody else, on my environment and circumstances. And they can't blame it on me. They're accountable to God themselves. No. But yes, yes, I am responsible to God for those people whom he brings into my orbit and to whom I have an opportunity to share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ. What did Paul say? I am a debtor to all men. See? Yes, yes. No, and yes. Verse 10, and he said, Why hast thou, what hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood cries unto me from the ground. I don't have time to say this. I have to look at it carefully. If you read, and don't turn there now, in Hebrews 12, 24, don't turn there now, it speaks of the blood of Christ, which also cries and speaks of better things. That's the Bible than the blood of Abel. Why? The blood of Christ cries, the blood of Abel cries. What does the blood of Abel cry for? Vengeance, judgment. What does the blood of Christ call for? Forgiveness and redemption. See? May I suggest you look at that sometime, but not now. Verse 11, now art thou cursed from the earth, which has opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. See. God cursed him in the place that he had violated. He spilt his brother's blood on the ground, so the ground's going to be cursed. When you till the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee your strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be. A fugitive and a wanderer shalt thou be in the earth. Now, Cain 
who up to this point has been real arrogant, real arrogant, all of a sudden, boy, he gets real sober. He now begins to whine. See, he's on the defensive now. And Cain said, Oh, Lord, he said, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from your face I shall be hid, and I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer in this earth. And it shall come to pass, and God hadn't said this, but probably true, that everyone that finds me shall slay me. Who is that everyone? Other sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. They'll want to slay me. Why? Because I killed their brother. Who was the oldest son? We know that Adam and Eve from Genesis 5 had many, many sons and daughters. That's the answer to the question, where did Cain get his wife? Married a sister. The early part of the human race. God permitted that. He doesn't now. That's, that's forbidden in the Leverett Law. But in the early history, when the strains of weakness were not, were not as dominant, he permitted that. He would have to. So there was Cain and was Abel, and there were many other sons and daughters. Abel was the oldest son. Who do you think that little, you know, Joseph or Joseph or whatever his name was, and Mary, sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, who do you think took care of them when they went swimming? And who watched out for them when the animals were around? And who helped them when they were little children? Who was it? Probably Abel. And they loved their oldest brother. And Cain, the second son, see, slew him. Some of them were out to get him. And he knew it. And they'll slay me when they find me. So God engraves, verse 15, the last verse. The Lord said unto Cain, he gives him, God in his mercy makes a provision for him. He gives him two things. Number one, therefore, whosoever slays Cain, Vengeance shall be taken on him how, how much? Yeah, now that, got, that was known. That got around because later on, Lamech said, look at verse 24, verse 23. Lamech, who was a defiant man before God, Lamech said to his wife, Adon Zillah, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Hearken unto my speech. Now this is the first Hebrew poetry right here in verse 23. I've slain a man to my wounding and a young man to my hurt. If Cain shall be avenged, Sevenfold, I'll go God one better. See, this was a boast. I'll avenge myself seventy and sevenfold. But you see, that, that, that promise that God gave to Cain, God knows. If you touch Cain, I'll avenge him sevenfold, said God. That's the first one. Now look at the second one. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain lest any finding him should kill him. Now, let me explain what that is. And it's not what it's normally taken to be, may I say. The sign was not placed upon Cain. It was a sign for Cain. Let me read that again. The Lord said, gave, the word set means gave, gave a mark or sign for or to Cain. It's not some sort of a mark that he put upon Cain. He didn't put something in his forehead. He didn't put something in his forehead. Or one member of the human race doesn't come from this. It's not a mark upon Cain. It's a sign to Cain, a sign of assurance. You remember when God called Gideon 
Gideon said, I can't do it. So what did God give to Gideon? A sign, the fleas. God gave to Gideon a sign, supernatural sign. So God gave to Cain a sign, a sign of what? Of his protection. God said, what was that? I don't know what it was. Maybe instantaneously, like the burning bush, he destroyed a bush. I don't know what it was, but it was a supernatural sign. And Cain saw, and that sign, supernatural, so supernatural, he couldn't explain it in, in natural terms. That was an assurance. That word mark means an assurance. That was an assurance to Cain that nobody was going to destroy him. Now, um, which would you rather have as protection? Would you rather have a sign or would you rather have God? Huh? Well, I'd rather take God, see. See, God pledged, he didn't give a sign on Cain. He gave a supernatural sign to Cain of his protection. By God was saying, I'm going to protect you so that nobody will kill you. Now we ask ourselves, God later said, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his own blood be shed. In Genesis 9, 5, and 6, God instituted capital punishment. And I don't think that that has ever been disallowed. See? I don't think Jesus did. The reason that God instituted capital punishment is because man was created in the image of God. And when I destroy a man, I destroy something of the image of God. Well, if that's true, why didn't God put Cain to death at this point? Well, I think the answer is because God had not instituted that law at this time. He didn't institute that law until Genesis 9-6. And after Genesis 9-6, God then instituted that law. All right, we're through now, and I want to wrap it up by making three observations. And the most important one. Obviously, this chapter is important because it's the first fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. What does Genesis 3.15 say? I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between her seed and your seed. Who was the seed of the devil? Cain. How do we know? 1 John 3.12. Who was the seed of the woman? Abel. He was the righteous one, the Bible tells us. And this is the opening uh, skirmish in that war. May I say something else? And it's very important, and I don't have time really to deal with it. So may I ask you to look up here? In Genesis 3, man disobeys God, and his vertical relationship is destroyed. And when man's vertical relationship is damaged and destroyed, then his horizontal relationship to others is damaged. When a man becomes an alien to God, he becomes an alien to his fellow man. And what is modern literature taken up with today? The alienated man. And humanism tries to restore man. You know one of the, the, uh, one of the catchwords today? Reconciliation. Reconciliation. I'm involved, they tell us, in a ministry of reconciliation. There's no reconciliation between man and man until this relationship has been restored. This was broken in Genesis 3, vertical. 
When that was broken, this was broken. And it was evidenced by a brother killing a brother. See, God set man against man. And that warfare of man against man, man's inhumanity to man, will never be remedied until that one's restored. That's where all programs of amelioration, of human reconciliation, are going to run aground on shelves. That can never be restored until this is restored. When this is restored, then there's a substantial basis for this being restored. Horizontal, vertical first, then horizontal. Then may I say finally, that Cain and Abel represent the two men in human history. And every one of us here tonight is a Cain or an Abel, see? Cain is a picture of the natural man, the unsaved man, the man who rejects God's way and attempts to come to God in his own way. Cain brought the produce of the field. The natural man today brings his good works or his religious activity or turning over a new leaf. Whatever it may be called, he tries to come God's way. That's the natural man. He may be decent. He may be kind. Maybe cultured, may even be religious, but he's a natural man. Why is he? Because he tries to come to God by his own way. Paul describes that in Romans chapter 10. He says of his kinsmen, according to the flesh, the Jew, that they, being ignorant, willfully ignorant, of God's righteousness, are going about attempting to establish their own righteousness and have not submitted unto the righteousness of God. Cain is a picture of the natural man, the man in Memphis. Maybe somebody here tonight, religious, cultured, kind, decent, but attempting to come to God your way rather than God's way. What did Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. What does the Bible say in Acts 4.20? Neither is there salvation in any other. For there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The way of Cain, the way of the natural man who attempts to come to God. Abel is the other man. And Abel represents the spiritual man, the saved man who recognizes his fallen estate, who comes to God by faith, God's way, the God-ordained way offers a sacrifice. Now, there are only two men in human history. See? There are two Adams, the first Adam and the last Adam. And there are two other men, Cain, the natural man, cultivated, religious, courteous, decent, kind, but who tries to come to God his own way. In God's judgment, he's not acceptable to God. And the other man is Abel, the spiritual man, the saved man, who comes to God, God's way. Now, you know the question I'm going to ask you? It's a personal question. Are you a Cain or an Abel? You here tonight a Cain or an Abel? You're coming to God, God's way? You're coming to God your way? You say, well, I go to church. Wonderful. I read the Bible, wonderful. I pray, 
That's fine. But that's not God's way of being saved. How's God's way? Come unto me, all you that labor. Heavy laden, I'll give you rest. I am the way, the truth, and life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Are you enabled tonight? You came. What do you say? Want to make about three announcements? Turn it off.